Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, My name is Pastor John. If I haven't met you, please make sure you introduce yourself to me today. I'd love to know you. Um, Today, uh, we are starting our look at the Psalms. We do Psalms all through the summer, uh, from now until Labor Day. Um, And as I say that, actually, today is not going to be a Psalm. Um, So all the other New Life churches are all going through the Psalms. Today, they're doing Psalm 95. Next week, we'll do Psalm 96, so you got homework, read ahead, and look at what the Lord's going to teach us in Psalm 96 next week. But today, I have a good friend of mine who's here. His name is Severin Hamilton. Um, He and I are kindred spirits in that we love history and we love Jesus. And um, we worked together for a while at Portland Christian um, and uh, developed a pretty good bond. Our families love each other. We're uh, close friends And he's got a message today to share with you all um, around the gospel and disability. So I'm really excited to hear this. I know I'm going to get fed. I'm going to be nerding out over here, taking notes, and I encourage you all to do the same. So let's welcome Severin as he comes on up here. Well, good morning. It is good to be with God's people in the house of the Lord. Amen. So I serve as the program manager at GuideLight. GuideLight is a ministry that works with families who experience disability. And our mission is the pursuit of Christ-centered transformation in the lives of those who experience disability. Uh, I used to be a teacher for nine years, taught with J-Rob for a season. J-Rob is his former name. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. But uh, anyway, it's a joy to be here. My wife, Megan, is here uh, 18 years. My two kiddos, uh, two of my three kiddos, Deacon, and my son Coulter are here. So I just want to share a bit of my story, and then I want to jump into uh, God's Word this morning. Um, when Coulter was still, still cooking in the oven around six months, uh, we went in for an ultrasound check, and uh, first ultrasound was there, then the next ultrasound came in, tech came in, and then a doctor came in, and they called us into a room and told us that we think your son might have trisomy 21, which is Down syndrome. And... Uh, that was, that, was, that was a hard uh, hit. Um, as Coulter got closer to full term, he started mellowing out uh, too much. Megan was going in regularly for stress tests. And, um, and then one day in June, during one of those stress tests, he was not being very responsive. And the doctor says, we think today is Coulter's birthday. And so sure enough, June 20th, he was born. And we spent the next three months at OHSU up in the NICU uh, with a wonderful team of staff uh, uh, and he suffered a host of complications from birth. He's healthy now by God's grace. But during that difficult season, the church was a huge means of grace to us. I was serving as an elder at a church on the east side, and the body of Christ was, was beautiful. They, they rallied around us and supported us. And my hope for, for this congregation, obviously I don't know most of you, but is that you would be that kind of a church, that when somebody experiences disability, um, that you would be those that come to them in their time of need and bear one another's burdens, right, as it says in Galatians. Um, also during that time, I was introduced to an organization called the Elisha Foundation, which is now GuideLight, and uh, Justin and Tamara Reimer, they're living in Bend, Oregon. They have their oldest son, Eli, who has Down syndrome, and uh, we serve families with all sorts of disabilities, but Down syndrome just happens to be uh, our, our special, uh, special gift. Um, but I met Justin and Tamara, and they became close friends and uh, just shared similar vision, similar heart for the gospel. 
And, um, and for Megan and I, it was, just, it, was, it was a means of grace for our family to see another family 16 years down the road. Eli was 15 or 16 at the time. And to see them navigating disability uh, with grace and with hope for the future. And in God's kind providence in 2019, I joined GuideLight, joined the team, and now get the privilege of offering that same hope and encouragement in the gospel to families. So that's a little bit about me. Um, I want to pray for us, and then I want to jump into God's word together. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that you have ordained for us to gather Lord, on the Lord's day, to hear your word, to encourage each other, to, to sing, to pray, to fellowship, to break bread, be reminded of our Lord's suffering, of his passion, his death, his resurrection. Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear, pray that you would speak by your word. Lord, I pray that you would guard us from the evil one, pray that you would uh, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, all right. So I have two main hopes for our time this morning. First, I want to provide encouragement uh, and hope for those who experience disability, or maybe will experience disability in the future, for you to see that this is not plan B for your life. Disability can be a real punch in the gut. It can knock the wind out of your sails. It can make you doubt the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God. But in God's economy, suffering is redemptive. The second point, or the second hope I have, is to provoke you. I want to help quicken this local body, New Life Gladstone, to better hear Christ's call to go out to the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and welcome them in to the kingdom. So my topic this morning is disability in the gospel, and the one big idea that I want to communicate this morning is that the kingdom of God welcomes the weak. The kingdom of God welcomes the weak. I want to begin by reading a story from a friend of mine, uh, from Table Talk, he is a pastor, and it's called The Community for Broken Homes. Let me read this short little uh, section by J my friend Jim. It's 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and a monumental battle is being waged. Margie wants to go to church, but is it really worth the trouble? Her disabled son is more difficult to deal with in the mornings. She doesn't go to the early adult Sunday school class, for there is nowhere for her child to go. It could be that she reads too much into the glance from the lady with the perfect hair and family. Some people seem to communicate pity, some seem to be annoyed, and some are kind. She feels shame and wonders if anyone would notice if she never attended. Her husband left years ago. She usually sits in the back row so that she can leave quickly if the need arises. Margie's family represents countless families in our communities. There are thousands of stories filled with tired faces. They are children of God who are in difficult transitions, traumas, and tragedies. They do not feel wanted or that they belong in the church. Their kids are too troubled. Their families too messed up. They think they have too many failures and too many scars to be welcomed in the church. Everyone seems to be so well put together. How can a displaced, dysfunctional, and different type of family find a place where they can worship and belong? Where do we start? Jim asks. The first step for the church, he says, is a change of mindset. So that's my desire for us this morning, for us to gain a, a new mindset, a changed perspective, a changed attitude towards those who experience disability and our own understanding of the gospel, to help the church, the kingdom of God, further become a community where the weak are welcome. The kingdom of God welcomes the weak. So let's go back to the beginning. I'm going to be in a number of texts, so Romans 15, we'll get to towards the end. 
but uh, this is more topical, uh, and, uh, but I will jump into Genesis. So Genesis 1, in the beginning, right? The triune God creates the known universe by a word, creating everything from nothing. And at the end of the sixth day of creation, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God calls them to be fruitful, multiply, to make the garden a beautiful place to be, to flourish, to have dominion over the work of God's hands. They're called to rule as God's representatives. God's image bearers on earth, the kingdom of God. The psalmist speaks to this beautiful mystery and wonder of being made in God's image. It's a familiar passage for you, Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. There is a wonder and a mystery to God's handiwork in making us in his image. We are beautiful. Look around at the people in this room. They, we, each of us, made in God's image. You guys aren't looking around very well. Okay, look around, look around. <laughs> You're made in God's image. You're beautiful. Consider that for a moment. But then Genesis 3, right? After God places the crown of his creation in the garden and commands them to rule and reign over all his creation, God tells them they can eat from any tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know the story, right? The crafty serpent sneaks up to Eve and whispers that seditious lie, did God really say? Did God really say? And Eve and Adam believe the deadly lie rather than the living God, and they eat from the tree. And rather than trust and obey their loving, good father, they try to play God, and guess what? It doesn't work. Sin separates, rebellion, ruptures, sedition, shatters the fellowship, and death enters our lives. Because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, they are cursed in all their progeny, all those who come after them inherit that broken bent towards sinful rebellion. We are broken. Look around. We are broken, right? So two foundational realities that we as followers of Jesus need to embrace. First, everyone is beautiful, made in God's image. But second, everyone is broken, shattered by sin. We are the broken beautiful. We are the broken beautiful. So to be certain that this foundation, this, this, this concrete cures and doesn't crack, let's continue the story in Genesis, okay? Just a bit more. There's a temptation to assume that now that things are broken, we're no longer made in God's image, right? Well, we used to be made in God's image. We used to be beautiful, but now look at me. Look at me in the mirror. Look what, ah, no, we're not made in God's image. Well, let's consider Noah and the flood, okay? Let's consider Noah and the flood. In Genesis 6, men multiply... Next, yeah, we go. Thank you. Men multiply, they fill the earth, but wickedness runs rampant. God declares he will bring judgment on wicked humanity and flood the earth. And yet, and yet, Noah finds favor with God. Noah finds favor with God. And for those people and animals in that ark, mercy triumphs over judgment. And in Genesis 9, after the waters have subsided, God blesses Noah and then reminds this rescued humanity to not murder 
and the consequences for taking another's life. And God tells Noah in Genesis 9, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So we're we're told not to murder people because all of us, every human being, is made in God's image. Now, this is after the fall, right? This is after the flood. Unless you think Noah and his family are kind of some new human 2.0, somehow better than the sorry lot that got flooded and destroyed in the deluge, just rewind to Genesis 8. After the flood waters recede, Noah makes an animal sacrifice. He comes out of the ark and thanks to God for his deliverance. And in Genesis 8, verse 21, we read this verse. Then when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Why? For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Okay? Track with me, please. So post-flood, post-fall, the intention of men's hearts are evil from their youth, and yet God still declares to Noah in Genesis 9, don't kill that person. Why? Because they are made in my image. They are connected to me. They are a reflection of me, and to kill them is an attack against me, the God that they image and reflect. That is profound. We are the broken beautiful. Despite our rebellion, we are still made in God's image. Not sort of made in God's image, not three-fifths made in God's image. That's the tip of the hat to J-Rob. All of us, right, fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image and likeness. This is a reality, brothers and sisters, a right, a title that we have been given by God. Talk about radical grace. Well, one more New Testament scripture that echoes this same sentiment is in James chapter 3. James chapter 3, here Jesus' brother, James, rebukes Christians for the wicked ways that we use our tongue, and he says this in James chapter 3, verse 9. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. So the reason we don't speak ill of our neighbor, the reason we don't curse our fellow human being is because they are made in God's likeness. We don't literally kill with our hands, and we don't kill with our words because every person, every person on planet Earth, regardless of their abilities or their inabilities, regardless of their progeny or their pedigree, their creeds or their confessions, whether they're Muslim or Buddhist or fill in the blank, is made in God's likeness. So to speak ill of our fellow human or to strike out at our fellow human is to speak ill or strike out at the God who created them. And sadly, for those who experience disability, history is riddled with shame and with trauma, with neglect and institutionalization, abuse, and even murder. Prenatal testing is being used more and more to eradicate, to kill children in the womb who may have Down syndrome or some other less desirable condition or disability. In that room, after we got Coulter's prenatal diagnosis, they called us in. They said, we think your son might have trisomy 21. And they talked to us about our options, adoption and abortion. And I stopped that woman. I said, we're not having this conversation. This is my child. We're broken. And yet after Coulter's born, the doctors rallied and did amazing work to keep him alive. It is a mystery. That's, it's beautiful, right? Before he's born, they're trying to consider getting rid of him, and now after he's born, they're doing everything they can to save him. 
It is, it is a mystery. We are the broken beautiful. So the question that we have to ask ourselves as we consider this human dilemma, this human struggle, is how do we honor and show dignity to our fellow humanity who, despite all our differences, each are made in God's image? That's the question. So let me finish this introduction with one quote from John Kilner. John Kilner wrote a book called Dignity and Destiny. He's a theologian. It's a heavy book, uh, but I would highly recommend reading it. And he speaks of Christ as the true image of God and how all of us are made in God's image. Let me read this lengthy quote. It's up here on the screen. Ultimately, the image of God is Jesus Christ. People are first created and later renewed according to that image. Image involves connection and reflection. Creation in God's image entails a special connection with God and an intended reflection of God. Renewal in God's image entails a more intimate connection with God through Christ and an increasingly actual reflection of God in Christ to God's glory. This connection with God is the basis of human dignity. This reflection of God is the beauty of human destiny. All of humanity participates in human dignity, and all of humanity is offered human destiny, though only some embrace and will experience it. Christ and humanity, connection and reflection, dignity and destiny lie at the heart of what God's image is all about. So as we discuss disability in the gospel, we need to begin there with a proper anthropology, an understanding of who people are. We are the broken, beautiful, made in God's image, created to live in a connection with God and be a reflection of who God is. All right? So if I ask you, who are you? You can say, I'm the broken, beautiful, right? Okay. So with that foundation laid, as we look at disability in the gospel, let's consider three truths together. First, the gospel is a theology of weakness and welcome. Second, God is good and sovereign over disability. And third, the church is a welcoming a community. Okay? Point number one, the gospel is a theology of weakness and welcome. It sounds cool, right? Theology, weakness, and welcome, right? It just kind of sounds good, but is, that, but is it biblical, right? That's what really matters. So let's take some time. I want to look in the gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Luke. We're going to navigate through a few passages here to see if this golden thread, this melodic line, is in fact ringing and shimmering throughout Christ's message. The Gospel of Luke chapter 4, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, right? He's in his hometown of Nazareth. He's a good Jewish man. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And on this particular day, Jesus stands up in the, to read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Scroll is given to him. He opens it up, and he reads this from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll. He sits down, and he declares, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus announced from the beginning that he was anointed. Why? To reach out to the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. As you look at Jesus' public ministry throughout the Gospels, you'll discover, so, discover that so much of Jesus' time and his energy was spent serving those on the margins of society. Many of those were, the, were the, those with disabilities. And Jesus will often use physical disabilities, as we'll see later on, to speak to a deeper disability and brokenness. Well, one of Jesus' first miracles found in Luke 5 involves a disabled man, a man living with leprosy. The man sees Jesus passing by and cries out for healing. 
Now, being disabled with leprosy in Jesus' day was not only physically disabling, it was socially disabling. Those with leprosy, they were unclean, they wouldn't be touched. And from a wrong reading of the law, the religious elite had created all these massive barriers between those who were clean and those who were unclean. And as we see, Jesus rebukes these leaders for their pride that blinds them to a right understanding of the intent of God's law. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This man living with leprosy, perhaps barely surviving with leprosy, he begs Jesus to be healed. And Jesus is moved with compassion. And rather than simply speaking a word to heal, because he had healed the Peter's mother-in-law, right, by just speaking a word, right, and the fever left. But rather than doing that, Jesus touches the untouchable. Jesus touched the man and healed a physical infirmity. But with that touch, brothers and sisters, he touched an even deeper place in the man and no doubt brought profound soul healing, showing him that the Son of Man was there not for judgment, but for mercy. In the next story in Luke's gospel, Jesus heals the paralytic. He's lowered down through the roof to Jesus. And just as an aside, how did he get there? How did the paralytic get there? Did he bring himself? No, right? A few friends brought him. He wouldn't have gotten to Jesus, or to put it in our context, he wouldn't have gotten to church, okay? He wouldn't have gotten to church unless someone brought him, right? Jesus cares for this whole man, his body and soul, and after the man is brought into Jesus' presence, what's the first thing he tells the man? Does he heal him first? No, he tells him, your sins are forgiven. And then he physically heals the man, tells him to take up his bed and go home. Luke 6, don't worry. I'm not going to go through every chapter. Uh, <laughs> J-Rob did give me a time frame, so... Luke 6, we have Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, right, compared to uh, Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. But here, Jesus again reveals how the kingdom of God is one that welcomes the weak. After healing a man with a withered hand and then appointing a ragtag group of disciples to be his apostles, Jesus is surrounded by this great crowd who want more and more of Jesus. Jesus obviously, I'm sure, is exhausted, right? He was like us in all ways. He got tired, but yet he was without sin. He's patient. And he delivers this Sermon on the Plain. And listen to how Jesus responds here in Luke 6, or how he preaches in Luke 6. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven." for so their fathers did to the prophets. Do you see this constant refrain? Do you see this golden thread, this melodic line? The kingdom of God welcomes the weak. The kingdom of God welcomes the weak. Two more passages in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 14. We read one of our Lord's most clearing calls. In Luke 14, we read one of our Lord's most clearing calls to welcome the weak. Luke 14. One Sabbath, Jesus had been invited to dine at the home of one of the ruling Pharisees. And as Jesus knows all the pomp and circumstance that goes on as people are vying for honor and better positions at this feast, Jesus says to the one who invited him, verse 12, Luke 14, verse 12, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Now, this is not saying that you never invite your relatives over, okay? 
Don't use this as an excuse not to invite your in-laws over, okay? Jesus is speaking to our heart, to our motive. Are you scratching someone's back so that they'll scratch yours, or is your heart filled with love and welcome towards those who are easily overlooked? Jesus, the servant king, who came, as it says in Mark 10, 45, not to be served, but to serve, right, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He calls us to go out to the weak, those on the margins of society, and welcome them in to the great banquet of God's kingdom. Amen? To speak practically, I think a key reason we often fail to reach out to the weak is because we fail to see our own weakness, right, and how much Christ has lovingly forgiven us. Last passage in Luke we'll look at, Luke 18. One of my favorite passages of Scripture in all of Holy Writ, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Listen to Jesus. Luke 18, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who is justified, little theology, justification, that's the way my parents taught it to me. Justification, just as if I've never sinned, just as if I've always obeyed. Just as if I've never sinned. All your sins, all your sins, they're forgiven. But you're not left with zero money in the bank account. The debt's not just simply paid, but all of Christ's righteousness is now given to you. Okay, so if you're teaching your kids simple doctrine, what is justification? Just as if I've never sinned. Kind of sounds like justification, right? I used to be a teacher, forgive me, right? Just as if... I've always obeyed, right? The righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift. So when Jesus looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's radical, right? This man, this tax collector is justified, made right with God. He beats his chest. He recognizes his own brokenness. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus welcomes him in. He welcomes him in. The gospel is a theology of weakness and welcome. Point number two. God is good and sovereign over disability. Each one of us, if we're honest, when difficulties, when hardships, when disability impact us, the question we ask is, who sinned, right? Who's to blame? Whose fault is it? I want to point a finger, right? I did that in my own experience with disability. When we received our son's prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome, I wanted to blame someone, myself, my loved ones. It's horrible, but it's true. We slip so easily into a culture of shame and blame. And those impacted by disability constantly fight the nag of guilt and shame and blame. Listen to Thomas Reynolds as he writes in his book, Vulnerable Communion, about struggles in raising his son, Chris, who lives with disability. It's on the screen. Learning to love my son has meant putting aside presumptions about what love is, what counts for value in a person, what being human entails. This has not been easy. When there is struggle and pain in the process, I must confess, my first impulse is to feel disappointed, cheated, even betrayed by life. Chris's presence ruptures my controlled, planned, and predictable world. 
I'm inclined to think that somehow things have gone awry, pieces scattered in disarray, hopes deferred. Because of this, it is easy to feel a sense of failure, as if I am flawed in some basic way, have done something horrible or tra- to traumatize Chris, or have not done enough to help him accommodate to how a normal child should be. Amen. Well, in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus deal with this same dilemma. In John 9, Jesus encounters a man blind from birth. This is a lot of, I'm sure, Jay, I'm sure John always says, this is like my favorite, right? And then like next week, this is my favorite, right? This is another one of my favorites. Uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus encounters this man born blind, and his disciples ask him this question, the same question we ask when hardships come. Who's to blame? Whose fault is it, right? I want to point the finger. Disciples ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus is patient with these fledgling disciples, and our beautiful Lord responds, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you want the works of God to be displayed in your life? Well, it might involve suffering, friends. It might involve disability. It might involve deep disappointment. Our human condition, we love to justify ourselves. We think we can just live by the scorecard, right? And to check off all the boxes and I'm good. Well, Jesus comes to shatter our self-righteousness. And often disability in the gospel is used by Jesus to reveal how all humanity is disabled. Later in the story, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees who think they can see, right? The man's healed. The man starts talking all about Jesus. And the Pharisees are like, no, 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 no. And then Jesus goes to them and he says, you guys are blind, right? Though they can see with their physical eyes, they are blind to the Messiah, the Mashiach, the one they've been waiting for, the anointed one, right before them. They seek to justify themselves with their own religiosities and self-righteousness. Friends, we have this insidious tendency to think God God operates in a tit-for-tat economy, okay? If I do everything right, life will go well. There is some proverbial wisdom in there, right? We do reap what we sow. There is blessing in obedience. But as we consider the wisdom literature in Proverbs, right, you need to continue with the wisdom literature to Ecclesiastes and Job. In Ecclesiastes, you see the vanity of life lived under the sky, how prosperity and adversity seem to affect both the righteous and the wicked, and then get to the life of Job, where we see the sovereign Lord allows, uses suffering to accomplish something very much deeper in Job's life. And Job comes to see that the Lord gives and the Lord takes. The righteous will suffer. But as Job declares at the end of the book, no plan of God's can be thwarted. And sadly, like Job's friends, we easily turn the Proverbs of God into some mechanistic pulleys, right? Some levers we think we can manipulate. If I obey, life will be good, pain-free. If I disobey, there will be suffering, disability, calamity. It's the cosmic, you've probably heard it before, pinata stick view of God, right? If I hit this life just right, if I do all the right things, God, cosmic pinata, you'll give me candy. You'll give me a good life. God owes me candy. (laughs) We do that. But is this the right way to think? Well, it's clearly how Jesus' disciples were navigating the man born blind, right? They didn't do it. They didn't hit the the pinata right. There's no candy. This guy's blind. Why? It's his parents' fault? It's his fault? God says no, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In the midst of disability, brothers and sisters, God is good and God is sovereign. 
The fact that someone had been impacted, has been impacted by disability is not that some evil slipped through God's fingers. God didn't miss a stitch, and oops, the rest of your life is plan B. Right? Stuttering Moses, Exodus 4. God calls him, tells him to deliver the people. Moses is afraid. He complains about his inability to speak. And he wanted one of the most clearest passages about the sovereignty of God, the Lord responds, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Our ways are not God's ways, friends. Our good and sovereign God will bring good through suffering. Do you believe that? Well, consider the gospel, right? Did God bring good through suffering in the life of Christ? Absolutely. Our very redemption, our deliverance from our slavery to sin and the judgment of God comes through suffering, the suffering of another, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus declares in John 12, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Christ died in our place on our behalf and through his suffering, through his suffering brought forth glorious and beautiful fruit. Look around you. You are the fruit of Christ's suffering. We are the fruit of Christ's suffering. If he had not gone into that grave, if he had not offered himself up, we would not be here. The suffering of the gospel is not plan B for Jesus. And your life filled with a trial of disability or whatever other difficulty, friends, you are facing is not plan B. Every aspect of your life is used, orchestrated, ordained by God, not to point fingers, not to bring shame, but to display the grace and the glory of God. We must trust God's sovereign hand in all of our lives. Everything you have, everything you experience, it's hard, but it's true. It is a gift from God. The beautiful and the broken, the triumphs and the tragedies, the comforts and also the crushing. All things, you know your Bibles, Romans 8, work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Amen? Point number three, the church is a welcoming community. So a question for us all as we consider the life of Christ and look at this demographic of people Jesus hung out with, would that demographic be reflective of those in your church or in your own life? As I reflect on my own life, hanging out with the types of people that Jesus hung out with, it's not the ones I go to first, right? Not the ones I go to, if we're honest. Yet our Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, the servant king, he reaches out to the diseased, the disabled, the demonized, the despondent, the outcasts, and he welcomes them in. The kingdom of God welcomes the weak. Our churches are intended by God to be a community, a family where the broken, the weak are welcome. For those impacted by disability, church life is often filled with many barriers. Disability often breeds isolation and anxiety in social settings. Despite the resident desire for community, many of them think it's just easier to stay home rather than join a Sunday gathering. All the demands of caring for a child outside the home, perhaps mobility or medical demands, large group settings, variables they can't control like lights or sound for someone maybe with autism who struggles with sensory demands, and just the nagging stigmas and judgments if your child doesn't behave right. 
These very barriers make it much easier to simply forego church and stay home. Now, this isn't an excuse for families. We all have our struggles and barriers, and God calls us to assemble and to gather, right? But they're real challenges. They are real barriers. And so we, as the body of Christ, need to recognize this temptation and to empathize. And then like those friends who brought that paralytic to Jesus, we need to help. We need to help. A survey was conducted a while back of families experiencing disability. They're asked what the greatest barrier was in regards to church engagement and involvement. The single greatest barrier was not accessibility. It was not a lack of accommodations. It wasn't ADA, this or that. It was the attitude of the congregation, the attitude of the congregation. That's why it's so, un- so crucial, friends, to understand that the gospel is a theology of weakness and welcome. Who do we think we are, Right? As my friend Jim said in the beginning in the article, we need a change of mindset. Doesn't God choose the weak of the world so that no one can boast? Amen? Theologian Stanley Hauerwas made this quote. He said, the church must be the place where those living with a disability feel welcomed without apologizing, without being stared at, without being silently condemned. Well, in closing, I want to consider two scriptures with you as we make efforts to be a more welcoming community. The fact that you are here welcoming me is evidence that you are a welcome community. Uh, so thank you for uh, welcoming me. But Romans 15, this is the passage that was read this morning. I'll read it again. This is God's word. It's a mercy. Listen to the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. I wanna ask you a question. As I read that, which category did you put yourself in? Strong or weak? If I'm honest, I put myself in the strong. I've gotta put up with you, right? (laughs) So I'm I'm being honest, right? Or maybe you read it and like, I gotta put up with this guy. When's he gonna stop talking, right? Right? We do that. We put ourselves in the strong category, at least I do, by default. But if you read the Gospel of Romans or the Book of Romans, the Epistle of Romans, the whole point is that no one is righteous, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely as a gift. We're all weak. And in the context here with Romans 14 about food and all that, there is some reality of, yes, some are stronger, some are weaker in faith. But I think Paul's driving emphasis is like, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? If Jesus is patient with you and he bore all your reproach, then don't you think you ought to bear the, bear the, the difficulties of others, right? Welcome one another. The NIV says accept one another as God, as Christ has accepted you. Welcome one another as Christ has accepted you. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. If we receive this lavish grace and mercy, that ought to extend to the others, those around us. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 12. This passage is, if you go into any disability circles. I was at a conference last month. This is like the most quoted text about the body of Christ. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, calling for unity within this diverse body. 
as the church in Corinth is fractured and squabbling. And listen to God's word in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the body, I have no, nor again the head to the feet, excuse me, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Lots of analogy there. Head needs the feet. John 13, what does Jesus do in John 13, the Passover? He washes feet, right? Who's the head of the church? Jesus. Jesus, the head, seems to think that the feet are important. The feet even of these stinky ragtag disciples, one of whom is going to betray him, right? The, 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 the contrast is striking. The head needs the feet. Jesus knows he's going to die and raise again and go to the Father, and he's going to pour out the Holy Spirit, and they are going to be the ones, the disciples, those stinky feet. They're going to be the ones that carry on the, the, the gospel, that, that, that spread the good news far and wide. He sees his need for them. He's Jesus. He's Lord. He's sovereign, but yet he chooses to stoop down and wash some stinky feet of his ragtag disciples. Friends, we need one another. We need one another. Those with disability don't just need us. We need them. And we need to welcome them and empower them to use their gifts, their gifts, not just their needs, right? They have gifts within our churches, within the body of Christ, for the health of the body and the glory of God. A healthy church needs disability. A healthy church needs disability. One final quote from Grant McCaskill. He's a professor at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. I wish I could go there. <laughs> He's the chair of the New Testament exegesis there. And he, read, he wrote a wonderful book called Autism in the Church. And he says this, the value of members is not grounded in their perceived social capital, but rather on the fact that they have been chosen by God, given to the body, and gifted with the Holy Spirit, even in ways that are unremarkable. Their presence is a cause for celebration and their suffering a cause for collective concern. Amen? So friends, we've covered a lot of ground here. I've tried to lay a foundation that all of us are the broken beautiful, that the gospel is a theology of weakness and welcome, that God is good and sovereign over disability, and that the church is called by God to be a welcoming community. And I want to give you something very practical to apply, and I'll send, or when John will hopefully send this out this week for you to consider. But uh, this next slide is the five stages of changing attitudes. Obviously, you can't read that, uh, but I'm going to read it for you. This is put out by a brother, uh, Dan Vanderplatt. He has uh, cerebral palsy. Sometimes when you see someone with CP, you might think that they're mentally not there. He's brilliant. He just has muscle issues, and he stutters when he talks and can't control his body. Brilliant brother with Elam Christian Services. And uh, this is, my, my prayer for you guys is that you would, would move <laughs> to the right from ignorance to pity to care to friendship to co-laborers. So read it and just be honest with yourselves. Where am I at in this? You know, and I think we go back and forth. Some days we're here, some days we're there. Um, but let me read this and then I'll close. Stage one, ignorance. Weaknesses and disabilities are a sign that God either does not care or is not able to fix the situation. In fact, they may be a result of sin or a lack of faith. 
God is not involved in the life of someone with a disability because he can't use people who are so broken. I do not know people with disabilities, nor do I know anything about disabilities. I have no interest in getting to know them or to know more about their life. Whew. I hope we're not there. God help us. Stage two, pity. Maybe some of you are here. I feel sorry for people with disabilities. It's too bad, really. I'm blessed by God, and I can help others. I'm grateful that my children are not disabled. People with weaknesses and disabilities obviously need someone like me to help them and give them meaning due to their troubles. I really don't see any meaning or purpose to their lives. Okay? Stage three, care. Like me, people with disabilities were creating God's image. By that virtue alone, they have value. I hope that someone will take the time to show them God's love, and I will happily support such an effort. In fact, I think we need to find ways to help those people. Maybe we should start a special edu church education class and respite care for the sake of the parents. Amen. Mark and Cindy Shaw, they're going to be doing wonderful work here at New Life. Stage four, friendship. I've come to know and spend time with a friend who has a disability. This person has value in God's sight, but also in mine. And I know that my life is better for having known this person, and as much as I have helped her, she has also blessed me. In fact, I, know, I now like to initiate relationships with people who have disabilities. God brings many different people into my church and community, including people with disabilities, and we all benefit as we grow in friendship with each other. And then finally, co-laborers. If God has called each of us to serve and praise him with every fiber of our beings, then he has done the same thing for our brothers and sisters in Christ with disabilities. I, th I think ministry should not just be to people with disabilities, but with or alongside people who have disabilities. Together, we will encourage and equip each other with and without disabilities into every good work to respond to God's call on our lives. We can all give and we can all receive. Amen? Well, thank you again for giving me the opportunity to, to bring God's word. Uh, I hope that you're encouraged. I hope that you're provoked. And um, yeah, let's, uh, let me pray for us. God in heaven, thank you that you dwell amongst us. Thank you that you are with us and you are mighty to save. Thank you for your word. I pray that it would do its good work and that it would bring forth good, forth good fruit in the lives of the saints here. For those that don't know you, Lord, would bring conviction of sin and bring repentance and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, thank you for John Roberts. Thank you for the elders here. I pray that you would bless them as they seek to continually be a church that welcomes the weak. Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We pray your blessing on the rest of the service. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.